You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. All right, I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we're going to get right back into 1 Thessalonians. So let's pray together. God, we just want to once again praise you and thank you for your goodness, your grace, and your mercy in our life. God, we praise you and thank you that you have given us the church to lean on and to rely on for encouragement and for accountability. God, we we want to be a church that is banded together for the purpose of fighting sin in our own life, making your name known to those who are outside of our church as we all wait for your return. So God, we thank you for this local church and allowing us to be a part of it. And God, we thank you again for this Christmas season. As we've, as we've just recently sang about, God, it was a, a holy night. It was a divine night when you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be born. And God, as Galatians tells us, it was in the fullness of time. It was the absolutely best time for you to send your son. So, God, we praise you and thank you this morning for the first coming of Jesus, his, his perfect life, his sacrificial death for us. And, God, we praise you in recognizing that that first coming points towards the second coming. And that the second coming of Jesus has, has real meaning and significance for us as your children. Because when the fullness of time had come, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, so that we could be adopted as your sons and daughters. So, God, I pray that you would remind us of those truths this morning as we look into your word, that you would teach us and encourage us and convict us. God, that we would be faithful to proclaim this message of good news to others. God, that we would be faithful to proclaim that Christ is coming back with wrath. And that we can be spared from that wrath. Pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you guys will turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. Again, we are in the process of wrapping up 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm thankful for the fact that the, the Bible as a whole is telling one story. It's telling the story of God's plan to save mankind from his sin for for God's glory. That's what the Bible's about. And so it's convenient for me as as a teacher to know that when we come to Christmas time, when we come to Easter, that if we're going through a book of the Bible verse by verse, we don't necessarily have to jump to a different section of Scripture to focus on the Christmas season because the whole Bible is telling the story of how God has sent Jesus to save us. And so the Christmas story and the the Easter truths are interwoven into all of Scripture. And so as we come to this time of celebrating Christmas, we find ourselves going through the book of 1 Thessalonians verse by verse. But we're able to intentionally focus on the first coming, the Christmas season, right here in 1 Thessalonians. We're going to read again the entire chapter to set the context. But we're going to be focused in on the last verse this week, verse 10. It says, Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. 
We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Paul has established this, this church here in Thessalonica. He did it on the, the, the instruction by God through a dream that he was to go to the area of Macedonia. And he's now writing back to praise God for the salvation and the sanctification of these people. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He says, I know you've been saved. I know you received the gospel. It was, it was a, a gospel that fully convicted you and you responded to it. He says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and in Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And then verse 10, our text for today. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We've seen a three-step process of discipleship in this one chapter of Thessalonians. We've seen, number one, how we are responsible to be a person worth imitating. We're to be people that are worth imitating. Paul shows up in this town. He begins to proclaim the gospel. People get saved, and Paul begins to make the disciples. He makes disciples because he's a person who's worth imitating. His knowledge of God, his desire to follow Jesus, the, 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 the radical change in his life, is worth imitating for these people. We said step number two is that we have a responsibility to get other people to follow us. That we have a responsibility to respond to the gospel, to pursue growth and sanctification in our own life so that we become people worth imitating. And then we get people to follow us. We say, come follow me as I follow Christ. And then thirdly, we teach them to lead others. We teach them to lead others. We focused on number three two weeks ago. We said that, that they had become imitators of Paul and, and, and Timothy and Silas to the point that they had become an example to other believers. He says, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. We said this word example, it means that they were the exact thing that Christians should be. Their life, their, their example was exactly what Christians were supposed to be. We said Paul never uses this type of description for any of the other churches that he planted. That there was such an amazing work by the Holy Spirit in the lives of these people. We said that it can't really be attested to Paul because he wasn't there long enough. That he may have been there a maximum of six to nine months and then he had to move on because of persecution. So this is a testimony to what the Holy Spirit can do in the life of a genuine believer. That Paul writes back to this church and says, you guys got it. You, you, you understand. You're exactly what Christians are supposed to be. Their example, 
was the result of following Paul's example. So the, the, the fact that they had become what they were supposed to be was a testimony to Paul's faithfulness to disciple. Their example had spread beyond the local area. He says, people in Macedonia and in Achaia know about your conversion. And we said that Paul was in Achaia at this time, and the Thessalonians are in Macedonia. And so what Paul's saying is, your testimony, your conversion has bridged the gap between us. I had to leave you, and I'm in Achaia now. But your, your testimony is going out so strong that I can be this far away from you and hear about your salvation from other people. You've bridged the gap between the two of us. He says your, your, your testimony has sounded forth to where, and it's, it's funny how Paul puts it here. He says, your faith has gone forth everywhere so that we don't need to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us. The kind of reception we had among you. We said that Paul essentially is showing up in new places to start new gospel work. And he wants to use the Thessalonians as an example. And when he gets to these new places, these people tell him the story of what it was like when Paul made it to Thessalonica and shared the gospel. That he doesn't even get to inform new places about Thessalonica and their conversion. That the, the, the reputation has already reached these people that they're telling Paul. About Paul going to Thessalonica. That they, their testimony has gone out so far that it's making Paul's work that much easier. That Paul shows up to share the gospel and people have already heard what happened in Thessalonica. And so they're receiving the gospel from Paul at a much faster rate than before. God is using this church in Thessalonica to make his name great. And then we looked specifically two weeks ago at the, at the exact example, the, the reputation that was being proclaimed. So they report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. We said there was, there was three aspects there to their, their testimony. That they had, they had turned from idols. They had abandoned gods that don't exist, that, that don't have any hope. We said this was huge for them because they lived in an area where they were only 50 miles from Mount Olympus where it was believed that all these gods of that time lived. And they could probably see it from their town. They turned from these gods that they'd grown up worshipping to the living and true God. And Paul clearly reminds them, you're worshipping the only God that really lives. You've, you've turned and, and now you're serving this God. Turning and serving and waiting. The three aspects of their salvation. They turned from false gods. To serve the one true living God. And they are now waiting, as Paul says, for his son from heaven to return. And then we come to verse 10. Because in waiting for Jesus to come back, they're waiting specifically for something. Whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. In your notes there, definition for wrath. Someone reminded me that, that's been under my teaching for a while. What is the definition of wrath that we use? Yes, yes. God's proper response to man's sin. God's proper response to man's sin. And if you need to underline the word proper, circle it, that may be one of the most important parts of that definition. 
Because if I were to ask you, what, what, is, what does wrath mean? Which I usually do with all my classes that I teach. What does the word wrath mean? You know, that word conjures up ideas. And so it's not uncommon to hear the anger of God. Um, how God deals with sin. But it's that key word proper that gets left out so often. It's what God should do towards sin. This is what separates God from all the, the Greek gods that were being served at that time by these people. At that time, the, the, the fear was is that you would, you would do something to offend a God on a, on a day that he was having a bad day. The, the Greek gods had anger issues. They had temper issues. And so you were always fearful that you would do something to upset one of these gods. <clears throat> and the difference between the living and true God is that his wrath is proper. It's right. In Jeremiah chapter 10, we're going to jump around a lot today to kind of set the context of what Paul's talking about. In Jeremiah chapter 10, it says, Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nail so they cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it them to do good. Verse 6, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great. Your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. From among all the wise ones of the nations and in all your kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all work of skilled men, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Paul is reminding this church in Thessalonica the same thing that Jeremiah is reminding the people of Israel. He says, you've turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. A living and true God who is coming with real very, very real wrath. He says, let me remind you, these idols, they're made, they're sculpted. You guys bring in material from other places to build these idols. Nobody's scared of these idols. Like when it comes down to it, these idols are not real. But the God of Israel. And Paul says, the God that you now serve, Thessalonica, he's living and he's true and he is coming. He is coming one day with real wrath. And his wrath is proper and it's right. You may have heard this week that uh, famous British author Christopher Hitchens passed away from cancer. If you don't know who Christopher Hitchens is, he, is a, uh, he was a blatant proponent of atheism. He, he made it his job to, to proclaim that religion was foolish, that it was a crutch, that it was dangerous to this world, that it needed to be removed and abolished. He was a proponent that, that God does not exist. He wrote a book called God is Not Great. Um, and, and recently had gone on tour with Doug Wilson, a pastor from uh, Moscow, Iowa. Um, and they had gone around doing what's called collision. A, um, 
a debate type of uh, conference where they would debate the existence of God. And so in that relationship, Doug Wilson got very close with Christopher Hitchens and would obviously share the gospel with him and witness to him. And he would continue to reject, continue to reject. And uh, Christopher Hitchens was diagnosed with cancer, I think, about a year ago, maybe. And um, recently was was doing an interview. And mind you, this is a guy who says, God, absolutely no way a God exists. And in talking in the interview, he said, I just want to tell my fans that if you catch rumor that I had a deathbed conversion, don't believe it. He said, it's, it's possible that when I'm faced with death, I may say some things or do some things that I don't really mean. And it, it, it's, it's crazy to think about a man who's so against God until death begins to creep up on him. Obviously, he was beginning to have thoughts about what's going to happen when I die. And still wanting to hang on to his atheism, he says, even if I converted my deathbed, don't believe it. Because he said the cancer may infect my brain. To where I actually say things that I don't mean. And Doug Wilson was talking about this. And you know, he was you know, saying that he hoped that his friend had gotten right with God before his death. But then he made a statement. Ultimately in this interview that Doug Wilson did. He said, we lead the soul of, of Christopher Hitchens in the hands of God. Who will do nothing but right. There's a guy who... Who had begun to love this man, who was a friend of this man, who hates the idea of him being in hell for eternity. But he doesn't try to remove the possibility of it. He just says, look, at the end of the day, I can trust that my friend is in the hands of a God who will do rightly. Who will do rightly. And if he's in hell for eternity, it's right. It's proper. God's wrath is his proper, just, appropriate response to man's rebellion and sin towards a holy God. That God is so infinitely worthy of praise and worship that when we worship ourselves, which is what sin ultimately is, us saying that we make the rules, that it deserves separation from God for eternity. And God would have been very right and just to pour out his wrath on every single one of us. It would have been very right, very appropriate, very proper for God to do so. It would have been very right for God to skip the first coming and to go straight to the second coming and send Jesus in all his glory and all his wrath to pour out punishment on those who had rejected his lordship and his kingship. And we all would have been found guilty of that treason. But God, because he's loving and merciful, has made us has made us a situation where we can escape that wrath through His Son, Jesus Christ. So wrath is God's proper response to man's sin. What does it mean to be saved from wrath? What does it mean to be saved from wrath? The first thing there, we are saved from what deserves judgment. When we talk about, in 1 Thessalonians, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come, we, right now, are saved from what deserves judgment. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, this passage being told to Christians 
After we've come to Christ, we have a responsibility to always be turning from idols. Always be turning from sin to Christ. Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Paul says God's wrath is going to be poured out on sin, on this fruit of sin. Covetousness, idolatry, impurity, evil desires, passion, sexual immorality. Verse 7, in these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We've been saved from sin. We've been saved from the penalty of sin, but we've been saved from like having to be a slave of sin today. We have been saved from having to live out sinful desires. We put on the new self. The old man is passing away. The new man has come. We are a new creature, a new creature created in Christ Jesus for good works. We've been made to be zealous for good works. So when we say that we've been saved from wrath, it's not just that we've been saved from God's anger when Jesus comes back. We've been saved from the very things that warrant God's wrath. On a practical level, we've been saved from living in sin. We're to put off these things. We're to get rid of these things. We're to live this new life that's been given to us. In Titus chapter 2 verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people. This is right after the first coming. Jesus' birth initiates salvation. It, it starts the end times, basically. Salvation has appeared for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Paul tells the Thessalonians, just this Jesus who's been raised from the dead, you're waiting on him to come back. He delivers you from the wrath to come. So there's a future aspect to our salvation, a future aspect to being saved from wrath, but there's a present day reality to being saved from wrath. We are saved from the very things that deserve God's wrath and judgment. We're able to now, with the Holy Spirit living inside of us, fight sin Turn our back on sin, turn our back on idols, and turn to the living true God. Secondly, what does it mean to be saved from wrath? We are saved from the judgment we deserve. We're saved from the actions that deserve God's judgment now. But then ultimately we will be saved from the judgment that we deserve for performing all these actions. In 1 Thessalonians 5. Skipping ahead in the chat in the book that we're in. Verse 1. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light. 
Children of the day, we are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for the helmet, the hope of salvation. Verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, when he says awake or asleep, he means whether we are currently alive or already dead. Because remember the Thessalonians, as we continue to study this, they were concerned what happened to our Christian brothers and sisters that died. Like we responded to the gospel, but they've died now and Jesus didn't come back yet. So what happens to them? Paul says it doesn't matter whether you're awake or you're asleep. We're going to live with him. Therefore, encourage one another. Build one another up just as you are doing. Because you're not destined for wrath anymore. If you're saved, you're not destined to receive wrath when Jesus comes back. You were destined for salvation. You were destined to be spared from that wrath. You don't have to worry about standing before God one day and receiving the proper judgment that you deserve because God's wrath for us that are Christians hasn't just been taken away. Hasn't just been removed. It's been poured out already on Jesus on the cross. It's not that just that God says, okay, I had wrath intended for Dave Schoenfeld. I had wrath intended for Jake Brewer. But now that they've gotten saved, I'm just going to get rid of it, I guess. Like, they, they escaped my wrath. No, like, the wrath still has to be poured out. The wrath was already ignited. The bomb was already set, and it has to go off. It has to be executed. And it's executed on Christ on the cross. So it's not just that when Dave gets saved, his wrath goes away. No, his wrath poured out on Jesus. It's dumped out on Jesus. For those that aren't saved, God's wrath will be dumped out on them when he returns. But praise God, we are not destined for wrath if we're saved. But that wrath has already been dealt with. It's already been absorbed by Christ on the cross. We're saved from the judgment we deserve. Which means, and we've already kind of been saying this today, a proper grasp of the first coming inevitably leads... To a proper hope for the second coming. A proper grasp of the first coming inevitably leads to a proper hope of the second coming. Essentially, the success of the first coming guarantees success of the second coming. It, it almost sounds like Paul kind of throws in this idea of the resurrection here in 1 Thessalonians 10. He says, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. He just kind of throws in this idea that, oh, by the way, Jesus was resurrected. It just seems like he kind of includes that kind of, I don't, it doesn't necessarily feel like it fits. Like you're waiting for Jesus to come back to save you from the wrath to come. But then in that sentence, he throws in the fact that, oh, by the way, Jesus came back from the dead. The resurrection is God's stamp of approval on the first coming. That's why Paul includes this here. He says, Jesus is coming back the second time to save you from wrath. And by the way, the reason that you can be comforted and assured that you're going to be spared from that wrath is because Jesus was resurrected. 
God the Father put the stamp of approval on Jesus' life by resurrecting him from the dead. We see this in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three days Sabbath, he reasoned with them. This is Paul sharing the gospel with the Thessalonians for the very first time. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Remember, Paul lays a foundation to the Thessalonians. Theology of Jesus. He suffered for your sins. He rose from the dead. You skip down to verse 22. Paul's now addressing a different group of people. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also on the altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said. For we indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Again, the whole debunking of idols. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he's, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is God's stamp of approval. He says, I'm sending Jesus back to judge this earth. And the reason you know I'm going to do this is because I raised him from the dead. I've given him this authority because I've stamped my approval on what he came to do. The resurrection validates everything that happened in the first coming. It gives us hope and assurance that the second coming is going to unfold just like God promised. It validates the first coming. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. Kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You that are saved here this morning, you, your salvation is past tense in the sense that when you accepted Christ as your Savior, you were saved. But there's a future sense to your salvation that you have not fully realized everything about your salvation. You haven't fully realized everything about your salvation. There's still a future aspect to it. It's as though God purchased you, God bought you, but that's not the end of the story. He's fixing us now through sanctification. So we sometimes think of it as justification, our salvation in the past when we got saved. Sanctification, the, the fixing of us, the making us more and more holy like Jesus. And then the glorification, 
The day where it all comes to, the, to fruition. Where Jesus comes back, we get new bodies, sin is completely taken away. So he owns us. Our salvation is done. And yet it's not. There's still a future aspect to it. We're still going to enjoy more and more of our salvation as it comes to be. It'd be similar maybe to, to purchasing a house. Right now is a, is a great time to purchase houses. There's houses that are being foreclosed on and um, great deals are, are to be had out there. I've, me and Lauren have been looking at bank-owned homes and um, they're not always in the best condition. Um, you can get good deals on them, but you buy them with the understanding that you're going to have to fix them up. And so if Lauren and I decided we could purchase a house, we could, we could pay it, own it, and it becomes ours. It's our house. And yet, when we walk into that house, this ain't, this ain't done. Like, this ain't our house yet. We got some fixing to do. We got some recreation to do in this house until finally there will come a point where we can invite people to the house and say, welcome to our house. We've got it just like we want it now. That's in a sense how our salvation is. We've been saved. We've been bought. We've been purchased. But when God purchased us, he purchased us in our sin. He purchased us when we were enemies. And he buys us and he adopts us and he says, but this ain't the end. We ain't done with this yet. Like this isn't my children yet. I've got to make them what I intend for them to be. And that's conformed to the image of my son. And so God begins to work in us through the Holy Spirit, making us more and more like Christ. And there's coming a day when he returns that everything gets finished. That the house, in a sense, is completely restored the way it should be. And we're, we're what we're meant to be. And so when Paul says, you're, you're waiting for Jesus to come back to be spared from wrath, there's a future aspect to our salvation. So prophecy is about the first coming. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 says that he will rule on the throne of David forever. There was a prophecy in the Old Testament. God made a promise to David when he was king over Israel. He said, I'm going to send someone through your line, a descendant of yours, David, who will never relinquish the throne. He will rule forever. We know that prophecy to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And he's sitting on the throne right now, but we are awaiting his earthly return when he, when he brings that, 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 that rule, that kingdom, into complete existence for us. He, he is the, the descendant of David that will rule forever. In um, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, and then verse 27... His kingdom will never end. His kingdom will never end. We're waiting for the return of a king who will rule forever. The Old Testament people were waiting for this same king. Sometimes we think that when we read the Christmas story that everybody missed it. That... Jesus kind of snuck in secretly in Bethlehem and everybody missed it. And to a sense, there's, there's some truth to that, that a lot of people didn't notice that the Messiah had been born. But we do know specifically that some people were fully aware of that. One example being the wise men. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 8 talks about um, 
the wise men coming from the east. But what's, what's crazy about that story, like we've, we've heard the story of the wise men coming for, for a long time. It doesn't resonate with us that the people have traveled hundreds of miles to get to Bethlehem to essentially worship a Jewish Messiah. A Jewish king. We, we've come to see the one who's been born king of the Jews. You, you should read that and say, what are they doing here? Like, why do they care that the Jews have a new king? And when Herod, when Herod talks to him, he says, what are you talking about? I'm the king. Like, I haven't had any kids. I haven't had any kids recently. Like, what do you mean there's a new king? And they begin to, they begin to dig a little bit and they realize you're talking about the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. And a lot of people speculate that the wise men knew about this through the ministry of Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego, who were in the east, captives in Babylon, Jewish boys who had grown up hearing about the Messiah. Daniel grows up in Babylon to be an old man, and he writes the book of Daniel in Babylon. And so it's very likely that as he interacts with the other wise men of Babylon, he begins to say, you guys need to understand there's a Messiah coming. He's going to rule on the throne forever. and His kingdom's going to last forever. You need to be looking for this. So the wise men begin to inquire into the prophecies of Daniel. And when the, when the baby is born and the star appears, they come marching to Bethlehem to see the Messiah. So we know that there were Gentiles who were looking for it. But there's even an account that the Jewish people, to a degree, were looking for this Messiah. In Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Jesus is being brought to the temple, which was the custom. There was a man named Simeon and a man and a woman named Anna there who were working in the temple. Simeon, we know, was told by God, you will not die until you see the Messiah. I mean, what, a, what, a, what an amazing promise. Can you imagine if God promised to you, you will not die until Jesus comes back? Like, guaranteed. When all of a sudden you're like, wow, like. I know exactly what I'm waiting on. Like, you know, I don't have to worry about if I'm going to die today because I haven't seen Jesus today. Simeon begins to get older and older. And his, his clock's starting to tick down. And he's thinking, it's getting close. Like, it has to be getting close because I can't go on much longer. I'm, I'm getting old. I, I'm going to die soon. And God's made a promise that I'm not going to die until Jesus comes. So he's, he's anticipating the Messiah. But then Anna, verse 36, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God because Jesus has come to the temple. She's aware that the Messiah has been born. And to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. It seems that Anna had a group of friends who were waiting on Jesus too. And it's easy to kind of blow over that and just think, hey, there's only a, a few people that got this. We don't know how many people were waiting for this redemption. But there was obviously a group of people, wise men, people working at the temple, Anna's friends that were waiting for the Messiah, that were, that were on edge, waiting for these prophecies to be fulfilled. They were waiting for the first coming. There's some prophecies for the second coming, and we'll wrap up with this. I 
Understand that when we talk about the second coming, we're talking about when Jesus comes back and puts an end to things. He brings his kingdom. Um, we're not, there's, there's a group of people and good people that believe that Jesus is actually going to come two more times. That he's going to come in the sense of a rapture, take his church away, and then the book of Revelation starts to unfold. And then he comes again at the second time. What we're talking about, when we talk about the hope of the second coming, we're talking about when Jesus comes back. The second time. We, we believe here that the first coming, Jesus came, born, died on the cross. Um, I have a hard time seeing Jesus coming back two more times. Now, he may. And I may be wrong about that. But Scripture is very clear that he's coming in the time that we're talking about. He may come in the, in the sense of a rapture. That's debatable. What's not debatable is what we call the second coming. And the reason the rapture is not referred to as a coming, because people that hold to a rapture view don't believe that Jesus actually steps down on earth, that we meet him in the sky and go right back to heaven. So it's not considered a coming. So I just want to be clear. You can believe in the rapture and that's fine. But when we talk about the second coming, don't, don't confuse the two. The rapture is not the second coming. The church is told to wait for the second coming. The rapture just simply says that Jesus comes for the, the believers and they go back to heaven and then life continues on this earth. The second coming, when Jesus comes back the second time, life on this earth doesn't continue like it has been. Like There's a, there's a definitive change in the way that, that things happen on this earth. Um, so just to be clear about what we're talking about when we talk about the second coming. Prophecies about the second coming. It will be glorious for some and dreadful for others. It will be glorious for some and dreadful for others. Matthew chapter 24. This is a passage that is, is most of the time misunderstood. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. This isn't the only time that the second coming is referred to like the times of Noah. That judgment was going to come on Noah's time, so they all get in the ark. Judgment is coming on this earth, so we're supposed to get into Christ. Okay? Verse 38. For as those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. So life was continuing as normal. Verse 39. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So when God's wrath came during the time of Noah, everybody was taken away except for Noah and his family who were found right in the eyes of God. They were in the ark. They had obeyed God. So will the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 40. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. See, I grew up believing that you wanted to be the one that was taken. That in this context... There's two people working in the field, one person's taken, one person's left. But if you understand the context of this passage, he's relating it to the story of Noah. And in the story of Noah, do you want to be taken or left? 
You want to be left. You don't want to be swept away by God's wrath. And so the picture here is that God's wrath is coming and it will sweep away those that are not believers. And the ones that are left are God's children. That's the picture here in this passage that God's wrath is coming. And it's going it's to be poured out on people. And many are going to be consumed and taken up in that wrath and then others are going to be left. I can tell you, based on the context of this passage, you want to be left. You want to be spared from that wrath. You want God to show up and say, your wrath's already been dealt with. I've already poured it out on Jesus. You're, you're left. You're okay. You're going to enter into the eternal kingdom. It's going to be good. It's going to be glorious for some. And it's going to be dreadful for others. And this is what's alarming about the second coming. Is that you read passages of scripture and sometimes the second coming is presented as the greatest thing ever. I mean, why would you not want the second coming to happen? And then you read other passages and you're like, oh man, that sounds like the scariest thing ever. Like, that's going to be horrific when Jesus comes back. And the reason for that is the second coming will be experienced in two different ways. When it's presented as a good thing, it's presented to believers. We are absolutely looking forward to the day that Jesus comes back. But for unbelievers, it will be the absolute most dreadful day in history. And we see both pictures in Scripture. For the unbeliever, it's going to be wrath. For the unbeliever, it is going to be wrath. Revelation chapter 19. I don't pretend to fully understand the book of Revelation. And I certainly don't pretend to fully understand Revelation chapter 19. How you understand Revelation 19 and 20 shapes your eschatology. But what I do know is that Revelation 19 is presenting the second coming in a most dreadful way for those that are not prepared for it. And I think it does us some good when we read 1 Thessalonians 1.10 that we're going to be saved from the wrath to come. It deserves our attention that we spend some time thinking about what that would have been like if we weren't going to be saved from it. In Revelation 19, listen to the language that is used by John when he writes this. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. The whole way Jesus is described is that he's coming in anger, but it's proper anger. He's faithful, he's true, he's righteous, but he's angry, and he's coming to set war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses... From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Obviously, we don't typically tread on winepresses. This is a picture of Jesus. In the same way that someone would, would press the grapes to get the juice out, to make the wine, he is treading on top of God's wrath so that it is poured out on this earth. It's a startling picture of what's coming. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe, 
And on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God. This is not the marriage supper. All right, marriage supper was described previously. You don't want to be invited to this supper because you're on the menu for this supper. Marriage supper, we're eating with Jesus. This wrath supper, we are being eaten by birds. Look what it says. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet who, is in, was, who is in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. And those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Verse 21. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. I mean, you read that account of the second coming, and you're like, why are we looking forward to that? Like, why is that a good thing? It's because this is not how we experience the second coming. This is how the lost experience the second coming. This is how the, the rebellious, sinful unrepentant people on this earth will experience the second coming for us as believers by God's grace for the believer the second coming equals salvation for the believer it equals salvation first first Thessalonians chapter 4 a much more calming picture of Jesus's return Verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's not scary at all. I mean, that, that is a wonderful, encouraging hope for the church. That Jesus, the one that you have been faithfully serving, the one who loved you enough to die on the cross, is coming back for you. And you're going to meet him in the air, and you're going to enjoy him forever. It's a startling contrast between the two pictures. The reason for that is that people on this earth will experience it two different ways. For some, it will be great. For others, it will be horrific. As we wait for the second coming, there's two things that we continue to wait for. I told you that your salvation is still in a future context. The first thing, we wait for new bodies. We wait for new bodies. The promise of glorified bodies who do not sin, who do not experience death or sickness or pain is truly an encouragement to the believer. 
We're told in Hebrews 9, 27-28 that Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting Him. The second thing that we're still waiting on is righteousness. Righteousness. We've been promised it. We know it's been applied to our account. The idea of being made perfect in God's eyes. But one day we truly will be made perfect. Galatians 5, 5. For though the Spirit... Through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Romans 14, 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So we still will stand before God one day, even though we've been saved, even though our sins have been forgiven, even though God's imputed Jesus' righteousness to our account, we will still stand before Jesus one day. And we will give an account. But thank God we are prepared for that account. 2 Timothy 4.8 Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I had to, um, unfortunately, go to traffic court recently. Um, it was a very humbling experience coming back from Lydia's wedding and had to go through the town of Greenville. And um, it was late. And Lauren was not feeling good and was trying to get home, trying to get home to watch some of the Georgia-Tennessee game as well. And we got caught speeding. And um, just, I just didn't feel good about it. Like, I just felt like, you know, I, just, I was convicted over it. But I wanted to go and stand before the judge and see what that was like. And so I went to my court date a couple weeks ago. It was a crazy experience. I felt dirty being there. Like, I felt like... I was only going a little bit over, and there were people that were there for, for drugs and for other offenses that I was like, I, I need to be in a separate room. Like, this is not... I mean, there were people that came in with cuffs on and orange suits, and just like, I'm just here for a small traffic violation. And, you know, one by one, people went up and, and pled their case uh, before, before the judge. And, and one after another, guilty, guilty. They'd give this sob story. And you're sitting there and you're thinking, yeah, that does sound valid. The judge would say, is that all you got for me? Yeah. Great. I found you guilty. You can go pay the clerk. And like, I mean, just one after another, guilty, go pay the clerk. I was sitting there thinking and my anxiety was, you know, building. And I was like, I'm, I don't want to stand before this guy. Like, I'm guilty. Like, I don't have a story. And in fact, when I stood before him, he's like, you know, what are you here for? And I was like, I'm guilty. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I don't have a story. I'm not going to tell you anything. Just, I'm guilty. But the whole time I was thinking, I am so thankful that when I have to stand before the one judge, that I don't have to worry and wonder about what I'm going to say. That I'm not going to have to plead a case. I'm not going to have to give a sob story about why I should be let go. But the only thing that I can say is Christ. Yes, I'm guilty, but I've been forgiven. Like, I'm perfect now because of Christ. And I'm told here that, that the crown of righteousness will be awarded to me. That when I stand before him, I will be given the stamp of approval. 
that I will escape God's wrath, that I haven't been destined for wrath. I've been destined for salvation. So the application for us is that we wait. We wait faithfully. Paul says you you, you turn from idols to serve the living and true God who raised his son from the dead. The same son who's going to come and, and save you from the wrath to come. Second Peter. Chapter one. Skip down to verse 10. It says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've been saved, but we wait and we're to wait faithfully. We're to live out our salvation. We're to allow God to renovate us, to restore us, to submit ourselves to sanctification so that we can be made holy. And by doing that, it's a sign of our future salvation. We skip down to 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll jump around in here real quick. First one, this now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, and both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the prediction of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the word, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, talking about the flood. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. He goes on to say, don't don't think that God's being uh, delayed. A thousand years is like a day. A day is like a thousand years. The Lord is... Not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It'll come like a thief, and then the world will be dissolved. Verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens. And a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We've seen over the course of this chapter a really clear demonstration of how to make disciples. How to make disciples. Number one, we saw that we share salvation. We share salvation. Just like Paul came into this town and began to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. He proclaimed the message of Jesus. We said that was his message. He didn't come trying to prove evolution or creationism. He didn't waste his time with with silly arguments. He came preaching Jesus. He shared salvation. Number two, see salvation. We talked about Paul was able to discern when someone truly got saved. When someone truly responded to the gospel. And then number three, he showed salvation. When we show salvation to others by being the type of people that are worth imitating. That we call people to follow us. So making disciples, we share salvation. 
We identify by seeing salvation when it really happens in someone's life. And then we begin to show salvation. We take that new disciple and we show them what it means to follow Jesus. Number four, two weeks ago, we talked about cultivating salvation. We provide discipleship opportunities to create this type of environment for them to grow in. We sow into people, as Galatians says, so that we can reap. And I use the illustration that we can sow into people so that other people will reap the benefits. That an older woman can take Jordan and sow into her what it means to be a godly woman and a godly wife and a godly mom so that her future husband and her future children reap the benefits of that sowing. That we make disciples, that we train people up to godliness. Titus 2, older older women teaching younger women, older men teaching younger men, so that people can reap those benefits. We cultivate salvation. And then lastly, we wait for salvation. As we've seen today, we wait for salvation together. As we grow disciples and build up disciples, we join with brothers and sisters as we wait for Jesus to come back. And we wait in the context of this local church. We're waiting for him to come and save us. Yes, he's already saved us. Yes, he's already bought us. But he's changing us. He's changing us. And there's coming a day when it'll be finished. The purchased house will look exactly like it should. We'll be given new bodies. We'll be awarded crowns of righteousness. A kingdom will be established where the descendant of David will rule and reign forever. Death and sin will be no more. The second coming of Jesus, dreadful for some, but extremely hopeful and encouraging for others. Let's pray. God, we praise you and thank you. But as we've seen through your word today, the second coming can be glorious for us because of the first coming. That your son Jesus came to absorb the wrath that we do deserve. And that it's because he absorbed that wrath That your apostle Paul could state to the Thessalonian church, Jesus is coming back to save you from the wrath to come. And so God, we praise you and thank you that Jesus is coming back to save Sovereign Hope Church from the wrath to come. That our wrath has already been poured out on your son. God, I pray that we would be faithful to proclaim this message. In the same way that the angels came to spread good news, gospel to those shepherds, proclaiming peace on earth, proclaiming reconciliation to you, Father. I pray that we would be faithful to proclaim that second message. That we would would announce the, the message of the second coming. That we would remind people that Jesus has already come one time, but that he's coming again. That we have a responsibility to be ready for that. God, I pray that you would call people to repentance in this area. God, if necessary, you would call people in this church to repentance that maybe have never been saved. God, that we would all be able to experience the second coming in the positive way. That we would be spared from the wrath to come. Father, we praise you and thank you that this salvation is not based on our works. Because if it was, it would never come to pass. But that our salvation is, is, is totally, fully rooted in the work of Jesus Christ. And so we praise Him. We praise You. We worship You, Father, for our salvation. 
It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Christ is going to come and lead us in a, in a time of response to what we've heard from the Word.